0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast brought to you in association with BDO. Speaking of which, this week we are once again joined by BDO and in the hot seat this week is Martina Petrosino, Business Development Manager for Natural Resources and Energy at BDO. Hi Martina, how are you doing?
1: Hi Alistair, I'm good. How are you?
0: Not too bad, not too bad, thanks. Uh, do you want to just maybe to kick us off, tell us a bit about yourself and a bit more about uh, what you do at BDO for the folks listening at home?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm the Business Development Manager for the Natural Resources and Energy sector at the firm. That Includes um, the oil and gas, uh, renewable energy, and mining sectors as well. And I'm in charge with uh, the strategy as well as all of the um, initiatives under the business plan that we do as a, as a firm, as a team, as a natural resources team. Mm. Um, It's a really exciting role. Um, So it it exposes exposes me to a lot of um, you know. The developments that happen in the market from a commercial perspective, as well as policy, technology, and I have to say, also i am am i am a I'm I'm a part-time um, MSc student oh. um, of a degree in energy technology and economics. So that really helps ah. um, my understanding, and um, and and yes, and it's a super exciting area. So very glad to to be studying and working in this area.
0: Fantastic! Wow, somebody pretty super qualified to to. Uh, Take us through the events of the week, and of course, we're also joined by another some another somebody who's super qualified. That's our digital journalist extraordinaire Hamish Penman. How are you, sir? Yeah, not bad. Like, how you doing? <laughs> yes, not too bad, Hamish. Not too bad. Uh, Good. So uh, we've had uh, another busy week this week, uh, and we'll be discussing the government's uh, tidal energy announcement and some decommissioning defaults in a short bit. But um, we will start off this week. Uh, with the government's news that in England, at least, new buildings will be required to include electric vehicle charging points. Now, we're going to be phasing uh, new petrol and diesel cars uh, out in the UK, uh, the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. So that's not really that far away. Um, uh, Martina, you've been taking a close look at this announcement from the government. Um, What have you made of it and and do you think it will... I guess, deliver the the change we need, particularly around things like, uh, well, range anxiety, for example.
1: Mm, Yes, I think range anxiety, I mean, especially for electric vehicles, is uh, one of the kind of traditional topics that people have been worrying about. Um, I think by the UK government, uh, you know, Trying to push for more um, infrastructure, charging infrastructure. Um, they're probably, you know, trying to solve that that kind of anxiety issue. Um, I think it's great, and we need all of this. Um, and perhaps, you know, as uh, more more people um, take up electric vehicles, the cost of, you know, the initial investment costs will come down. But at the moment, I feel that, um, I mean, at least speaking to some of my friends and some of my colleagues, um, I don't drive myself, so I don't really uh, know. But um, I know that the, the initial investment cost is still quite high, even for a hybrid car. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it takes time for these, um, for these technologies to come through. But I I think UK government is uh, is on the right path from a from a charging perspective at least. Mm,
0: yeah, no, I I, I do drive, um, and well, up here in Aberdeen anyway, we do have a growing number of EV charging points. But I think it's fair to say uh, not really enough. If you wanted to travel out with the city, for example, um, you're going to really struggle, I think. Or so I've heard anecdotally, anyway. To really get a. a reliable charging points um, at various points out in the countryside. Um, obviously, there's no shortage of EV charging points in London. Um, and we can talk a bit more about Scotland uh, in a bit, but even even in England, even with this announcement right now, there is a real disparity between the the London area mm. and other parts of the country, and there's just what the, I think the Competition and Markets Authority said. There's a bit of a a postcode lottery, particularly you know in small towns and villages. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this will this will solve the problem. I mean, I mean, uh, Hamish, I, I, I don't know whether you you're not a car owner, are you? But would you oh, ever yeah. consider an electric vehicle? I've got a car. Have you got a car? Oh, sorry, yeah. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs>
2: People make a lot of assumptions about me usually, Uh, but I don't have a car, Uh, it's not usually top of the list.
0: Well, I don't know why I thought that, because you live in town, and I thought you just walked away anyway.
2: Yeah, go on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, it's one of those things that everybody will consider, I think, when the cost comes down and uh, and the infrastructure's there, when that comes to being. I mean, at the moment, it kind of seems like it's very much the... The, the kind of like the the middle class dream to own an electric car and to and to tell everybody that you own an electric car and to to drive around. So, like, I think there needs to be that gap plugged between people looking to perhaps buy a second hand car and also be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, Martina. Because I don't know, there does seem to be a bit of a dearth in in charging points and infrastructure, and there is this twenty thirty date in place. So it's something that needs to happen. But do you think that perhaps investors and and companies are Unwilling to go fully in for electric yet, while there's other technologies on the market, so perhaps I mean h- people have spoken about hydrogen cars. Uh, I, I mean, you don't want to go, you don't want to make a pure play electric move if it's them, because if it then doesn't become the the wanted technology.
1: Mm. I think. I mean, I think <clears throat> when it comes to electric uh, vehicles, at least. I mean, comparing it to to hydrogen vehicles in the light kind of uh, light duty light vehicle kind of segment, I feel that battery electric are actually uh, potentially best, um, even compared to hydrogen cars, um, and that's because of the you know characteristics of hydrogen as a Uh, as a molecule it's uh, not very um, energy dense from a volume perspective and therefore you need bigger tanks in the car to be able to to store it Um, and that could cause issues in cars like in in passenger cars but perhaps on the kind of the bigger heavy duty vehicle space like in trucks or in even in shipping or even in aviation that's where hydrogen has most of the you know the 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 potential in my opinion Um, I think you do need uh, like a stop uh, date in terms of stop selling um, uh, international uh, internal combustion engine cars. Um, I think that is a way that, uh, you know, governments can ensure that the uptake of other kinds of, of vehicles, in this case, electric vehicles happens. Uh, but, it's it's really a balancing act because you you don't want to make people feel like they cannot afford a personal transportation method um so i think the 2030 target is good as long as we can get to uh you know a lower initial investment uh cost for an electric vehicle by then um, that pretty much everybody can afford
2: i think i think the big kind of barrier at the moment certainly for a lot of people is that if you have on-street parking and you live in a block of flats then you have very few options if you've got mm. if you have your own driveway then you can get a charging point put in i think relatively easily but for for those in tower blocks or, or just kind of on on street flats then it, it's not such a yeah. not such an easy option mm.
0: yeah yeah no, it, and it's interesting the point about hydrogen i mean there's a lot of companies that have um I guess uh, you might call in oil and gas a bit of a vested interest in 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 seeing that push through. I think uh, I think Martin, as you say, aviation, um, shipping. These are these are areas that we are probably going to see uh, hydrogen as a fuel. There's there's certainly more of a question mark around the the domestic the the you know your 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 car or or you know that kind of infrastructure and transport. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of of the companies that have a vested interest in hydrogen, you know, a lot of the big the big oil companies. But also, I suppose if you look at the main players in electric vehicle charging at the moment um, well, according to a report from the CMA in July that's Ubricity uh, owned by Shell you've got um, Total Energy's owned uh, player as well uh, you know Big Oil has got quite a hand in the market I mean what do you think about that uh, Martina is it is it uh i mean do you think people would criticize them for for being in that particular space i mean obviously there's a lot of greenwashing debate at the moment right now or is it is it the right thing to be investing in these spaces
1: um it's a good question i think i mean oil and gas has to evolve in terms of their business uh you know even the products that they offer so it makes sense for them to invest in hydrogen as a fuel, because uh, anyways, you know, they, they are the ones who own the, you know, molecules and fuels um, in the energy space, in the energy industry as a whole. Um, I think the problem is, um, in order to produce it uh, in a low carbon way, you need to attach carbon capture and storage facilities to the uh, you know uh, methane reforming process, and therefore, you know it can it, it can get quite. Um, uh, there, there are lots of steps in the process, and there are lots of inefficiencies and lots of heat loss, which translates into inefficiencies. Uh, <clears throat> but I think perhaps at least in the short term, the oil and gas sector is b- very well placed to deal with that uh, when it comes to to you know electric vehicle stations i think more and more uh, energy company like um, oil and gas companies are budging themselves as energy companies now and um i think the services area of energy like uh, in, in this case electric vehicle infrastructure and charging points is quite interesting because um in reality you can do a lot with um with uh, with chargers from the perspective of supporting the grid i mean we don't have vehicle to grid uh, yet uh mm. available as a technology but you can still as a car owner i think you can uh, decide to charge your car at different times depending on uh you know wh- what the price of electricity is at a certain point in time and that way you can support the grid as well smooth out um you know the peaks in demand um so I think it makes you know, just to answer your question, it's a long way to go around it but I think it makes sense for the oil and gas industry to try and find other ways to um, you know to evolve and um, uh, and perhaps think of new business models that they can get into um, and because of you know from the perspective of hydrogen it makes sense because, they are the ones dealing with fuels, at least they have been so far. So, uh, But, you know, in the long term, I feel we should uh, look to produce hydrogen much more from, you know, renewable electricity. So in that case, green hydrogen, um, because mm. of, you know, various environmental reasons and efficiency also.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Very well said I- indeed. OK, so um, I, I, I was going, I told myself. Don't make any terrible puns, um, but I'm going to do it. So we're going to park that segment there and we will drive on to our next section right after this.
3: BDO is a global audit, tax and advisory business. A team of 90,000 people working across 167 countries. BDO's UK Renewables Practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies, from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the experience we've gained in the sector over the last 15 years helps us understand the challenges faced by our Renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, essential in such a dynamic sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global and we are really proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed Renewable Infrastructure Funds with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential with BDO.
0: Okay, so moving on swiftly. Uh, Martina, you're going to recuse yourself as this one is slightly more sensitive. Um, so my, myself and Hamish will take this one on. Um, and this is our, uh, but if you want to jump in, by all means do so. Um, so this is our exclusive this week on a UAE controlled company which has allegedly defaulted on its decommissioning bills of uh, millions of pounds on a prominent North Sea production hub. This is Fujaira Oil & Gas, which bought stakes in the Greater Bray area, operated by TACA for just 75 pence in December. And anyone that follows the TACA Britanni, uh, their UK subsidiary, they might have spotted last month in their published accounts that there is mention of a a partner that has defaulted on its decom liability, however... The name of the field and indeed the the name of the operator partner is not named, and, and anyone eagle-eyed would have also found very similar language on the accounts of Spirit Energy and GX Nippon's accounts. Um, and someone has defaulted, but the the who and the where it, it wasn't known. Uh, I had not spotted those other accounts, just Takas. Uh, but thankfully, though, we do have a few friends in the industry that can help us with these things, and it became clear after a few. Uh, off-the-record discussions that the firm in question was indeed uh, Fujairah Oil & Gas Corporation, controlled by the namesake emirate of the UAE, who, as I say, acquired a 40% stake in the Greater Bray area for just uh, $1.75 in December 2020. So, uh, the the background to that uh, is that in June-July 2020, Rockrose Energy, the previous operator of Bray, uh, having bought it from Marathon Oil, was then sold to Viaro Energy, who then sold the GBA stakes in December to Fujaira. It's a lot of M&A transactions and convoluted deals, but essentially, uh, Fujaira ended up with it. Uh, And the Rock Rose subsidiary uh, that held the GBA stakes, uh, that that was transferred over, that had a decommissioning provision of more than $500 million in its latest set of accounts for December 2019. So that figure... Will have reduced, as DCOM was kind of carried out, but these are not unsubstantial numbers, and they'll be passed on to the other operating parties. So what does this mean for them? Spirit Energy said uh, that it, you know, its share of the, the costs will increase by some £50 million pounds as a consequence of the default. Um, as I understand it, essentially these other operating partners are going to take on the stakes on a proportional basis to their existing share, meaning the largest cost is going to fall on TACA as operator, which is not great for them, but they are owned by the Abu Dhabi government and will essentially be able to take it. And the system in the UK is designed as such to ensure that the taxpayer is effectively uh, protected. Um, it goes to the operating partners or indeed the previous operators, before decommissioning uh, defaults would fall on the taxpayer to protect us uh, from these sort of things going on. So it's an interesting case. Um, Decommissioning is becoming more and more litigious as these costs start to become a reality for many firms. Uh, And I think the likelihood that this one is it'll probably end up in, in court. So a couple of questions really. On how the deal came about, uh, how was it allowed to happen um, and why on earth would you buy stakes in a field that uh, that haven't, you know, that are, are about to head into decommissioning anyway? So we'll, we will let that play out and see how it goes.
2: Yeah, I mean, the fact that why was it allowed to happen, I think is, that would be the most pertinent for me because, something if I'm wrong, but there seem to be, there are a lot of kind of checks and balances as to as to when somebody takes on uh, takes on a project like this to ensure that they will be able to uh, deliver on what they say they will mm. um so it's clearly slipped through a few loops somewhere along the line mm. um because for them to to default on their decommissioning liabilities and to do so kind of quite quickly in terms of when they took on the fields is um it raises a lot of questions Um, It is a relief to see that it won't fall on the taxpayer, though, that is, or hopefully won't fall on the taxpayer. That does seem like a a good clause to have built into
0: this system. Yeah, yeah, no, it it certainly does. Um, So... Yeah, there, there's a question of oversight on this deal, which uh, I'll be honest, I've, I've kind of gone around the houses and uh, I'm still not 100% clear on, which I guess uh, says a lot, um, not not just about me, but also about the system in place. So uh, an analyst uh, told me that these would have been the equivalent of of whole company sales, do bear with me, dear listener, um, with the Rock Rose kind of subsidiary transferring to Fajira. And that means as a whole company sale, the Bray Partners, that's Taka JX Nippon and Spirit would not have been able to apply kind of the same level of scrutiny that they would have if this was purely an asset sale. That's my understanding. And the analyst said that he'd have expected the OGA to have done some kind of diligence, the Oil and Gas Authority, on this. However, what the OGA then came back with is that the licensee is not required to seek consent prior to a transaction of this type, so they can just go ahead. However the OGA has powers to intervene after the fact, including ultimately revoking the license. Um, So that would seem to me anyway that as long as the taxpayer is protected, the OGA... How to put this? um, I I think the taxpayer being protected is the number one priority. And as long as there is someone there to cover the costs, then that is probably all they need. And in this case, you do have three companies that can indeed cover the cost. You have Taka, as I say, uh, controlled by the UAE government, uh, the Abu Dhabi uh, government. You've got JX Nippon, which is a you know a, a huge uh, petroleum company out of Tokyo, and you've got Spirit Energy, backed by Centrica, the owner of British Gas. So these are companies that you would not expect to default. Now, are all of their tax um, positions the same? Is there is it one hundred percent sure that the, that nothing's going to fall on the taxpayer? I think that's maybe. A little bit less clear than it should be, um. But as things stand, it certainly looks like the the vast majority, um, if not all, will indeed fall on in these companies, um, taking kind of pro rata share. So I think I think that's the position we're in. The other big unknown is why take a stake, a forty percent stake in a in an asset which is on the very verge of a very hefty decommissioning uh, bill, um. I have a theory on that, but um, given the likelihood of this going to court, uh, I think it might be best if we avoid speculation and just let it play out. Um, as I say, kind of decommissioning is becoming more and more uh, litigious, and and the other thing we've not really talked about uh, is another piece of this story um, is that you know, rather ironically, I suppose now Taka Spirits and JX Nippon voted uh, last year under their operating agreement to oust. Rockrose Energy as the operator of Bray um, and that was put down to Rockrose's perceived inexperience as an operator, their lack of experience to bring down the overall $1.8 billion decommissioning bill and that may or may not have been valid at the time but this latest move certainly hasn't helped uh, protect them from the costs. So it's going to be an interesting one to see how it plays out and whether or not this one ends up in court. I expect it probably
2: will. You get the impression, though, that it could act as a bit of a, a precedent and a warning with decommissioning. I mean, well, we had the OG UK decommissioning report this week. It's hmm. Billions to be... 16 billion, was it, to be spent hmm. in the coming years? So hopefully when other companies are looking at this, uh, looking at their own liabilities and looking at their own um, assets, this will serve as a good a good reminder of what can happen if you don't kind of get it right. Yeah, um, Because... It is going to become such a, a huge market that if these um creases in the problem can crop up early then we can smooth them out then operators can smooth them out kind of quite quickly so hopefully about maybe a bit of a glass half full look but hopefully there can be some good to come of all of this yeah
0: yeah no absolutely and I think I think what we what we have seen um ourselves I mean it's not just been um this case, or even the the Bray Rockrose case earlier, uh, there's been uh, decommissioning uh, a prominent decommissioning case between Exxon and uh, Apache earlier this year as well, and it looks like as these problems, as these these decommissioning costs, which always seemed so far in the future, are now actually becoming a, a very real uh, reality. Um, more and more of this litigation seems to be propping, um, you know. Uh, coming up um, and bubbling up to the surface. So I, I guess, yes, we're probably going to see more of that as time goes by. Um, you, you need only look at uh, the, the legal community in Aberdeen and see the number of experts that are propping up on on, on, on these sort of topics and the, the, the analysis we're getting through on a pretty regular basis to see that it is something that everyone's kind of keeping an eye out on. So uh, we will do just that. So I think we'll we'll just see how that one plays out. Uh, and next up, we'll be talking title.
3: In this uniquely challenging environment, the global energy sector is looking to its leaders to drive the conversation forward. Companies at the forefront of our industry need to communicate how their expertise can help clients in the wider community now and when the market rebounds. Energy Voice is the trusted voice leading the global energy conversation on coronavirus, the oil price crash and the energy transition. Over the past month, energyvoice.com has been read over a million times We reach 1.4 million people on social and more than 12,500 people subscribe to Energy Voice. Because what we say matters. And because energy is our language, we can offer you a unique, integrated marketing service to ensure your expertise gets maximum exposure. A comprehensive suite of content services brings your message to life. Expert consultation hones that message to perfection and we have opportunities to share it across editorial, special reports, video, podcasts, webinars, and display advertising. To find out more about speaking to over 1 million qualified users in global energy through our peerless digital news and insight platform, visit energyvoice.com content hyphen services. We want to help get your message to the right people. And in these challenging times, we're pleased to offer a 25% introductory discount on new campaigns. For this and more, energyvoice.com slash content hyphen services
0: Okay, uh, so Hamish, there's been a, a lot of a lot of said around cop twenty six about the need for public monies to get the ball. Uh, get the ball rolling on more kind of nascent stage green technology Uh, and we've seen just that with the the UK government this week with the big announcement for tidal energy
2: yeah 20 million um, a year ring fenced for for tidal stream uh, projects that will come as part of the uh, contracts for difference uh, rounds Uh, the latest one of those is due to uh, kick off in a matter of weeks in the beginning of December it starts so um, to be fair to government, on this, they have uh, listened to industry. They've listened to calls from opposition parties. Um, industry particularly has underlined the need that if Tidal um, is going to make any sort of a go of it, it's going to need um, subsidizing in cash, and it's going to need it quite quickly. Um, so just on that CFD round, it's, it provides a, kind of an insurance to long-term investors. It gives them a guaranteed price for their... Uh, for their um, Kind of investments, um, and therefore makes it a, a kind of a more attractive proposition, um, especially for for large infrastructure projects that have got a lot of cash tied up in them, and for something in well something like energy that the price can fluctuate so quickly. Um, it's been a great success for offshore wind. That does seem to have been it's been heralded by industry by. Foreign governments, by by a kind of um, even opposition politicians, that this has been a, a government policy that has really worked and worked quite efficiently in terms of getting the cost of offshore wind down um, to the levels that we see it at today. Um, so, I mean, tidal, oh, sorry, wave, uh, tidal, tidal, yeah. <laughs> uh, specifically, um, is got. Quite a lot of resonance up up here in Scotland. We've got a couple of big projects. Um, MyGen, that's Simic Atlantis, has been the the biggest of them. Um, so they'll, I think they they have said that they will be looking to um, to bids in the CFD allocation rounds um obviously like any government announcement it didn't please everybody <laughs> uh opposition um the smp's leader in westminster ian blackford wasn't happy which was perhaps the most predictable thing about the entire announcement oh
0: how do um, you yeah no you're right <laughs>
2: <laughs> but he said that they needed um at least 71 million a year um, and that that figure had been touted by uh, by stephen flynn our local ms uh, mp up here as well um if Scotland is going to hit its ambitions basically said that they're going to need to what almost times that by three pretty much uh what the current and um current levels they're putting in so that's quite a big disparity there I mean it's 20 million a year so in a few years it will kind of reach that level um whether that's quick enough for some probably not we'll wait and see on that because when the CFD round hits we've still kind of got a lot of still a lot to be done even after projects have secured that funding um but it is a welcome step um scottish renewables have been been uh, praising it as have renewable uk um and hopefully it does get a get a bit of traction because uh, as far as kind of renewables technologies go tidal seems to have been a bit better in recent times of of delivering local content mm. um more so than offshore wind and the like, and I don't know whether that's because it's perhaps more uh, fledgling than offshore wind is, that it, it's been developed in line with the, the commitment to deliver on on local content. Um, so, a long way that continues. Yeah. Martina, what what have you made of uh, made of this announcement? I mean, we've seen
0: we've seen recently, even prior to this announcement, uh, the likes of, of Technip FMC getting involved with uh, Orbital Marine Power last week, for example. I mean, do you think this might? Help bring in a bit more private sector investment into uh, the tidal sector now that we've seen that little bit of of, of government cash uh, coming through.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's actually a pretty exciting news um, because the technology is really the tidal technology, tidal stream technology is available and it's commercial, so it makes sense to invest in scaling it up. Um, it's a low carbon source, and you know, I guess especially seeing. What recent, uh, you know, the fluctuation in recent gas prices has done to wholesale electricity prices and, you know, the price, potential price to consumers is quite um, uh, you know, worrying from a perspective, from some perspective, I guess the appeal of tidal uh, power is that, uh, tidal stream is that um, it's actually pre- a predictable uh, power generation because it depends on the, on, on gravitational forces, basically the attraction of uh, the moon and the sun and earth's rotation, which is a regular thing that happens. And, and I guess that, Is quite different from other variable renewable generations like uh, wind and solar, uh, which, you know, sometimes it's difficult to model because you don't really know uh, with certainty how much wind there will be and how much solar there will be. So I think because of all of these reasons, it's an exciting, um, you know, uh, news um, and i guess you're right in that you know one of the main problems is cost um but i was reading a report some time ago by the offshore renewable energy catapult Hmm. uh, which said that actually um although the price now is between 250 to 300 pounds per megawatt hour it's estimated that this could come down uh to 150 per megawatt hour with 100 megawatt Uh, 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 development of the technology and that will go down over time so I'm assuming with the current support um, from UK government it's actually really great news Um, in terms of whether it's enough, um, I don't. I, I personally don't know. Um, I read that there, is been, there has been uh, twenty-four million pounds uh, being ring-fenced for floating offshore wind projects, which is kind of you know similar amount um, uh, of money for. Tidal stream, um, but my impression is that well, of course, floating offshore is a lot more risky and more complex, I guess, mm. um, to install than uh, tidal stream is. But um, but it's kind of similar amount of money. So I'm not I'm really not sure if 20 million is um, enough for a technology that still you know needs a lot of support.
0: Yeah, I I think I think that that question is is going to uh, remain on the the cards in terms of whether or not it's enough for for a little bit of time to come. Um, Alistair Carmichael, um, he's the, the Lib Dem MP for, for Orkney and Shetland. He said he could, I guess, at this st- stage, he said he could quibble with the amount, but ultimately, this is a win for the Isles uh, and for the for the wider country. I mean, I th- I think I would uh, ultimately agree with that sentiment. I mean, certainly for 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 uh, Orkney and Shetland, this would be. Uh, hugely exciting and there's obviously a lot of uh, hope uh, around uh, development of this technology around those particular waters. Uh, Hamish, would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, I mean, a lot of Auckland and Shetney, uh, Orkney and Shetland, (laughs) Um, these are places that are historically not had that much investment seen towards them. They are quite often seen as kind of declining coastal communities and things. So for tidal projects and renewable projects in general, actually. This kind of could offer a new lease of life to these places that have seen declining population numbers in, in, in recent years. Um, so hopefully that's well, will be good news for them. And I, I would echo echo um, Alistair Carmichael's comments as well. Hopefully it's also a bit of good news for Simic Atlantis too, because they've had a bit of a, a rough year. That's Simic Atlantis <laughs> for the, the MyGen tidal, um, tidal array, because they've kind of had a bit of an ongoing... Ongoing struggle, but if they manage to snap up some money in in this CFD, they've got another few phases of of mygen they're planning and and have have got uh, approval for. So that could well be the the kind of um, the firing pistol on on. On getting those um, up and running and quickly, hopefully. And I guess, I
0: guess, just to look at the the big picture, long distance, uh, big picture. Um, we had a report um, from a number of universities uh, earlier this year suggesting that tidal tidal stream could generate eleven percent of the UK's electricity demand, eleven point five gigawatts by twenty fifty. So a long way into the future, and there's obviously a lot of ifs and buts and questions over, um, you know, government support, private sector support, in order to make that happen, but. I mean, if you look at the, the current Scott wind offshore wind round, that's what they're aiming for, what, 10 gigawatts uh, of new installed capacity. So that kind of gives you a sense of the scale of what could be achieved through, through tidal stream. So it, it, it certainly is a prize uh, that we should be uh, getting after. So... Whether or not that will come off, uh, I guess we have to 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 wait and see. But uh, it could be a, certainly a big a big win for for our coastal communities uh, here in in Scotland and the wider UK. I mean,
2: there's some really exciting work just going on generally up at the the EMAC Centre on Orkney. There's a lot of projects going on up there that are kind of quite quite innovative and quite uh, front running. We saw the the motion, motions Blue X um, wave uh, machine. That that just finished up its trials uh, this week, last week, um, up there, and from what the press release said, anyway, it was yeah. a resounding <laughs> yeah. success, and they're going again. So it just does seem like Orkney's becoming a real hub for this type of technology, and it's God, I think it's quite nice to see that such a focus from this industry is on on a place like Orkney that perhaps doesn't get the uh, the recognition it deserves all the time. Yeah, I'm not on commission for for a visit, Ortony. By the way.
0: Well, hey, listen, you you keep your name <laughs> in the hat. Let's, let's not rule anything out <laughs> here, man. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 good. It's good to see that um, it's kind of one of these spaces that, as as we touched on earlier, that. Um, the focus at the moment does seem to be to try to get these manufacturing, the manufacturing work done here uh, in 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 Scotland in the UK. Uh, Martina, how important is that piece? Do you think, in terms of of us, um, you know, uh, making sure we enjoy the the job side of things from uh, from for, from from Tidal, if it if it if it booms in the way we hope it it will.
1: I think it's quite <clears throat> it's quite important. I mean, as part of the uh, m- many of the objectives, even when it comes, for example, to technology like hydrogen with hubs in different parts of the uk um one of the main kind of um messages is that stimulating local econ- the local economy is actually quite an interesting uh in- an important part i guess um over time uh, london is, is you know come comes uh comes across as being the you know the main kind of center where everything happens, um, but I think Scotland you know Scotland is a particularly interesting area because with offshore wind and wind in general you know wind speeds are really high and um, the North Sea you know from from being a massive oil and gas producer now uh, there has been an evolution there's lots of offshore uh, wind now uh, and now we're looking at tidal and I know wave power Orkney is also doing lots of research on wave power which is also you know harnessing you know, the power of the sea in reality. So um, I think it's, it's definitely very important to empower local communities, create jobs and, um, and, uh, and yes, and, and I think because the Shetland Islands, I think they're not connected to the UK grid. Um, that, that's a great way to provide electricity to, um, you know, to, to the area itself through, you know, its own generated um, assets
0: fantastic yeah no ab- absolutely and-, and well said uh, i i think in that case that's a good place for us to leave it for another episode of energy voice out loud thank you very much for joining us martina you've been an excellent guest has that been okay or has that scared you off for life
1: <laughs> maybe scare me off for life but no thank you <laughs> it's great to be yeah, good, yeah. Good,
0: fantastic so yeah no thanks martina and thank you uh, hamish for joining me uh, so i've been Arsa thomas and thank you for listening
3: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.